Welcome into Two for One Drafts. Austin Gale here, the host of Two for One Drafts, a rookies and draft prospects podcast. I'm here with my guy, Mike Renner, ready to rip it up on our Thursday mailbag episode. Listener mailbag. Do you want your questions answered in the mailbag episode every single week? Leave a five-star review and drop your question on Apple Podcasts. We will get to it, I promise. And at the back end of the podcast, we have interviews with Clemson offensive tackle. He was very adamant about that. Offensive tackle Jackson Carmen, and then arguably the most offensive lineman aesthetic Creed Humphrey. You got to see the video on YouTube as well. This guy looks like an offensive lineman through and through. We have those two interviews on the back back end of the podcast. Let's get it. It is mailbag season. Everyone loves these episodes. Love watching them on YouTube. We're also sponsored by Smelling Salts today. If you're watching on YouTube, we have them right here with the used salt. We're getting up at 7 a.m. It's an early morning rip one. Salt. Yeah. You're going to have to rip a salt. Um, I also wanted to, I, on the Wednesday episode, I made some comments about unpaid internships, and the people in the DMs were attacking me. Oh, they were like, oh my gosh, I would take an unpaid internship any day of the week. Or some people who would taken the unpaid internships have said, man, I wouldn't trade that, you know, uh, trade that experience for the world. I get it. I agree. Unpaid internships have a ton of value. It is not on the person taking or that had took unpaid internships to feel like they were in the wrong. No, you did the right thing. You were in a great position. If you were in a position to take an unpaid internship, you should take it. You know, it's the same kind of feedback I give college students who ask me all the time, should I get a master's degree? If your parents are paying for it or you're getting a scholarship, absolutely. If that money's coming out of your pocket, I would argue against it. And the thing Depends is, is the field if you're master's. dealt a good hand in life, if you're born on second or third base, you should take every opportunity you get. You're, you're a kid. Take the unpaid internship. Let the, let, get the $20 a day for lunch. All that stuff. Fucking make some plays, dude. You were dealt a good hand. When you get home, though, be a good person. Be a good person when you get to home plate because there's a lot of people that weren't born on second or even first base. There's people and largely minority groups who are born in the fucking bleachers watching the damn game. And those guys can't or those guys and girls can't have unpaid internships. They're struggling. They're fighting. They're working jobs to even in high school to just keep food on the table. So my take is it's not on you to not take the unpaid internship. I get it. Take all the experiences and opportunities you can. But when you get there and when you're in a position to hire, hire paid internships so you can get those people who are born in the bleachers into the mix and giving equal experience yeah it's time for me to go back to my business school days here flex a little business school knowledge oh the it's externalities an ex- it's an externality it is an unfortunately an externality where no party involved the company offering an unpaid internship obviously doesn't have to pay a worker the person taking an unpaid internship who needs the experience no party involved has a negative interaction to it but other people are negatively impacted in it that aren't involved in that party. Specifically, it's a classist sort of system of you know, offering something for no money that people who can't work for no money can't do and then are negatively impacted by that at large. So it's one of those things where that is when free market people will say government can step in and I think that's a great rules, example. Which, like, I, I feel like the government has rules against not being able to, like, not paying people at all. Like, there's a minimum wage. <laughs> I don't know how the fuck they get around it. I haven't looked that deep into it. But um, call, to transition the conversation call, to something. We should start calling internships uh, 
unpaid internships for the PFF pod, people could just come hang out with us. Yeah. And that's your unpaid internship. That's my take too. It's like, how do people get experience in the business side? If a business or a company wants to mentor people, teach people, show people the ropes, do it for free. Don't ask them to do work. Don't ask them to produce work that you profit off of, period, full stop. All right, to transition the conversation to something a little less serious, we've talked about on the show before, Trey Lance getting in on the comment section of Liv Cowherd, Colin Cowherd's da uh, daughter on Instagram. We, it's seen before. This is at least yeah. the second or third time Trey Lance has shot his shot. This dude is out here shooting on Liv Cowherd's latest Instagram post, a selfie carousel. You really do eat a lot of vegetables. Okay. That's, Shows that he's talked to her a little bit. Yeah, he's that's, definitely that, that, like they were texting back and forth. Maybe Snapchat score. I don't know. She said, "Yeah, I eat a lot of veggies." Maybe she sent him a picture of an omelet, and he's like, "Yeah, I got some background. I got some rapport." Because all the other people in the Liv Cowherd comments are like, "Oh my god, heart emoji, heart emoji." He's like, "No, I got backstory." Yeah, I'm out here. He's not. He's not giving her too much. He's just like, you know, I'm here. I and his last comment I, on her post was similar, right? Yeah. It was like, oh, I thought you were in Chicago, something like that, which was maybe more creepy than that. <laughs> I don't think it was that. But let's say this right now. Trey Lance shoots his shot, and I respect it. Yeah, this is another one. He's rising up draft boards the more I see of this. He's getting out ahead of the narrative because Colin Cowherd's at some point going to trash Trey Lance for Has something. To. And Trey Lance got that in the back pocket. It's like, hey, you're, you're on the airwaves. I'm in Liv's DMs. You know what That's we need to do? I just thought of this. Because we had Joey Milanaro on our live show in Indy. We could shoot him a text, shoot him a DM. Be like, buddy, you need to get a cowherd impression oh, yeah. of him of seeing the Trey Lance quote, comment. That would do numbers for the kid. Yeah. I might text him after the podcast. That's a good idea. Because he would. that would do absolutely fucking numbers for I him. I will say, I'm, I feel like you have to be at a certain level of status to be able to just leave that comment. And like, you're a normal guy leaving a comment on someone's. You're just, you look like a creep. But if yes. you're... Trey Lance, you know, first round top 10 draft pick. You can leave that comment unadulterated. I on might some start randos. commenting on her same post with a variation of what Lance says to show that I like, I'm trying to say she's also texting me the same stuff. So <laughs> yeah, we'll just reply see, like, dude, we'll see that? how it goes. But I'm going to text Joey Molinaro. Also, Trey Lance, I mean, Cal Colin Cowherd, this is a call out to you. You start trashing Trey Lance. That boy's coming for the crown. Okay. You better look out. Uh, he's going to get He's, he's, gonna he's, get uh, he's playing chess. You're playing checkers if you want to start trashing you. So uh, either way, uh, let's get into the listener mailbag here. Damn, that is funny. If you're on YouTube, Quinn, you should show that the screenshot of the, the Instagram post because it's, it's funny. Um, but listener mailbag, we're starting with Jameson Schumacher. Number one, who are some names to look for? at the Chargers on day two or day three. We have two third-round picks. I've always been on the Waddle train for round one, if he's there, and Slater or Derrissaw if he's not. I think round two would be a great... If you're, if you're going Waddle, it would be a great time to address offensive line because I think this class will still have talent there. And guys like Tevin Jenkins could be there. His ADP we talked about on the Monday pod. It's in the 40s right now. That's where you're picking. That's where you're hoping he falls to. Sam Cosme from Texas, uh, I think would be great as well. I think with how deep the tackle class is, you take your shot at a tackle, and if if you want to play him inside, if you feel good about your tackles, then next year play him inside by all means. I think the cornerback class also, again, this is the they're taking the scheme, Brendan Staley, from the Los Angeles Rams, zone heavy, some man concepts on the outside, but like you can get away with the five nine guys. You can get away with an Asante Samuel. I think that would be a great fit Ooh. for that scheme. 
So someone like that in the second. And the third round is when I'd start to look nose tackle. I think Aline McNeil could fucking be there in the third round. That would be a great – they need some beef, man. They've just – like Jerry Tillery is too light to play on the inside. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually moves out to the edge this year. Tyler Shelvin, Marvin Wilson, get some horse in the middle of your defense. That's where I would go in the third round. Uh, Ali McNeil, I think, does ultimately fall to the third round, but he texted me off the record his pro day numbers, and they're absolutely absurd. Oh, I thought you were about to say I can't. I, like, I can't. No, I can't tell. Like, I can't. He said it has to be between me and him. You know, it's a little, you know, come on. Sorry. What I got the inside source. But you and him? I sent them to you, <laughs> and they are they are nuts, man. They are they're absolutely they nuts. Were. All right, his second question. I was, uh, you, I was, and I said back to you, I was like, add a tenth of a second to these yes. pro day adjustment they're still insane yeah if you adjust them for like error they're still pretty nuts uh i was ecstatic two years ago when we got jerry tillery in the first and nasir adderley in the second probably because he's a pff fan and you fucking hyped the hell out of those two how much hope should i have that they take a big year three leap with brand staley taking over and likely moving to a three four with derwin healthy i'm saying jerry tillery more out over the tackles i think it's where he's going to play more like a maybe like a five tech in that defense. And I think that's a better fit for him. He just like could not hold up to double teams. He's too yeah. high cut and light for the position. But when he, when he was playing more out on the edge, we saw he was, that's when he was at his best this past season, actually like was productive there this past season. And then Adderley, like this is a, it's a safety friendly scheme. I'll say because they play really soft. Like it lets them, they don't get attacked much. So I do think Adderley is, will have more, a little more freedom to then come downhill because you're you're not uh, you're not worried you're not worried about run defense in that scheme. The safeties do not add to the run defense. That's like the whole yeah. genius behind it is they don't really care. They get to all just play coverage on the back end. We've added a ton of new listeners in the last like six to eight weeks, and I don't think they've heard too much about some of the off field with Jerry Tillery. Oh, the Jerry oh, the, Tillery, and boy, I, I, Jerry. I think if you if you follow the podcast now, you know that I do a lot of the interviews, and he right now is one of the more awkward interviews I've ever had. He was very nervous, very you know. It, you can still find the interview on YouTube. And the other thing is that you were talking to some of the Chargers social media people, and we were t- that he like doesn't hang out with a lot of the players, and like yeah, I think he has go. like a lot of interest outside of football, and was just like an interesting culture fit to where I think that. Like I think that led into him like seeing a little bit of a learning curve in the NFL, honestly. Yeah, like he would on the bus like be with the like personnel, the pro personnel. Yeah, he didn't sit with other players on the bus. Dale Jeremiah told us that he randomly ran into them like taking an internship at a bank. Yeah, like in Hopefully the off season. Paid, but he probably doesn't need to be paid. Yeah, in you know all this stuff. And there was a lot of concerns. Was like he liked to read books. He liked to play tennis. And people were like, does this guy love football? And then you factor in some of this stuff where like he's not fitting like instantly from a culture perspective. The tennis one always. Cracks me up. He is six foot six, two hundred ninety pounds, and the guy played high school tennis. Yeah, but I remember he was very nervous He's, about me potentially asking some of those off-field questions, like, you know, how much, how much do you love football and that kind of shit. Yeah. And he was like, you could kind of see it. He was wearing it, but I do think he's like probably moved past that now. You saw him have more success yeah. last year. I do think though, like culturally and personality-wise, like it probably was a little bit of a jump for him. And now, like, that was him at Notre Dame too. His first two years was like in the doghouse because he was. 18, 19, just immature. It was like the whole knock. Yeah. Like you just like there really you struggled. And then senior year, junior and junior as well, but senior year was a monster. So we'll right. see. Fingers crossed. Charged From DP90. Love the pod guys. Just guys being dudes. 
Right, we got to move past Austin's twenty first birthday story was great. Some people hate when oh, I, I, read I added I added this one because it was he too yeah. is permanently banned. Some people don't like that hotel. we just keep reading like reviews of the pod. But Austin's twenty first birthday story was great. As I am too personally banned from a Las Vegas hotel. Awesome, but it's fine. I never wanted to go back to the Hard Rock anyway. Oh, if you're gonna get banned out of any hotel Hard in Rocks Las Vegas, good, Hard Rock's a great one. Yeah. That or Circus Circus, you know. But if you're still going to Circus Circus at like twenty plus, if you haven't been kicked out of the Hard Rock, you haven't been to Vegas. It's true. Very good point. Very good point. All right. From DP90 here, first question. So it should be obvious the main need for the Chargers offensive line. Oh, so another Chargers question. Oh, yeah. I personally think they could do with an entire new five starters along the offensive line. But other than that, what position do you think they should go for? You kind of answered this already, but what's your take? Yeah, I really like defensive tackle somewhere on day two. Um, I think you can just continue to add to the defensive side of the ball. Obviously, you want to surround Justin Herbert. That's how you're going to win. Offensive line should be the main focus. But then defensive side of the ball, I don't think there's necessarily a position I wouldn't address. Maybe linebacker is probably the only one I'd say, like, you got Kenneth Murray there. I, I think you'll be fine going forward. You don't necessarily need to add to there. So I think you could add anywhere else. And then he also asked, you know, what are some UDFAs potentially in this class that could do numbers? Oh, what are right there? Oh, KJ Stefferson. It's my boy. This wasn't is my, even invited to the combine. This is, my fi- this is my shot to pimp out my guy. Former Notre Dame. He started as a true freshman at Notre Dame over Miles Boykin, who was actually in his uh, same year, I believe, and then over Chase Claypool. And is in this year's draft. Started over those guys. NFLers. Third round pick, Miles Boykin. Second round pick, Chase Claypool. Is like talking to guys who played on the Notre Dame team, Notre Dame people. They rave about him he's a freak like 40 inch vertical 11 foot broad jump 195 pounds six foot one he truly is like his tape back then was awesome but off-field issues uh drug issues didn't hasn't played in three years now kicked around between uh was supposed to play for jackson state this year just decided to clear for the draft so that's who i would go for because talent talk still yeah and especially if you get him seventh round or undrafted free agent you you, you pulled that trigger exactly. pretty quickly he was not invited or officially I mean, invited that guy or... even based off of just his like sophomore tape if he would have had that as a junior is not making it to day three he's just not there you go all right from ironman football after the chief's poor performance do you think they address the offensive line or add a complimentary receiver to open up the quick passing game that lacked against tampa can i start here do it. People don't bring up enough because the offensive tackles, like who'd they start there? Wiley and um, Remmers. Remmers, yeah. And they People bring up like, oh, man, they were starting some bad offensive tackles. What happened here? They also started like Byron Pringle on the outside. You know, like they had like they were as good as like, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey are. Sammy Watkins was like kind of banged up but played. Nicole Hardman is not going to be that number two outside receiver. Like they also they do don't have that other guy there. Yes. Which I think is is something that doesn't get brought up enough because obviously the offensive tackles got, you know, te- you know destroyed. Yeah, they have, I mean, for as good as this Chiefs team is, they got a lot of glaring holes, which is almost nice. Like, you can, you know where to attack, where you need to fill. And you have those and because they, you have a superstar quarterback. And they can't, and they're paying other positions a ton of Frank money. Frank Clark a ton of money. That they really can't, they're not going to be able to add in free agency. You're not going to go get a Wolf Fuller. He's not going to just go, let me take a prove-it deal for $2 million. It's like, that's not... That's not going to happen, all right? There's uh, there's other teams Will Fuller could go to that'll pay him more than what the Chiefs can do that also have realistic chances of winning a Super Bowl. So, yeah, you'd love – at that point, I would take advantage of the kind of strong class here. So when it's a strong class at a certain position, 
wide receiver offensive line. Talent that otherwise wouldn't fall down falls down in a draft. Like Tristan Wirfs at 13 last year. He doesn't fall at 13 if there's not another offensive lineman. Like Christian Barmore, yeah, you could use uh, maybe another DT here if you're the Chiefs, but like don't draft a DT because they're going to go higher than because it's a weak DT class. So I would take advantage of that at either wide receiver or offensive tackle here. That's where I would go if I'm Chiefs. I, I really, the more I look at it, and I don't, I don't think it's overreacting to how poorly their tackles play in the Super Bowl. I just think the value of this class is going to hit at 31 for offensive tackle. And they might have to cut Eric Fisher to get under the cap or do something with Eric Fisher, and he might not even play next year with, uh, was it the Achilles injury? He's... I've heard some say that he could be ready for camp. Okay. Which I mean, would be like, insane. May, may not. It's like you, just, you don't know with injuries. So. Yeah. All right, from Nick Law 20. This year being as volatile as it's been at the quarterback position, coupled with the historically good quarterback class, how much effect will that have on asking price for teams inside the top five? And do you expect an RG3-like trade in this draft? That's his first question. Um, I don't think it's going to lower the asking price. I don't think it's going to be, though, the RG3 trade. It'll be more like the Eagles trade when they had to go up to the top five. I think they went from to two to get Carson Wentz I don't think we'll see another I think teams learn from that RG3 trade when they when it ended up being two more first round picks after that which ended up then being the Greg Robinson pick two years later which is a top three pick and obviously they kind of blew it with the Greg Robinson selection but that really the the Washington football team at the time was unable to build around RG3 after that. They just had nothing to do because they gave up everything for him. And so I think we'll see something closer to what the Eagles gave up, not a massive RG3 like trade. That, that, that brings up another point that I think we've hammered home in the past, but could potentially bring up again is that when you're evaluating trades, you're evaluating the process, not always the results. Cause sometimes when multiple picks are traded, you know, there are teams that traded those picks that will say, you can't grade this trade until you see who they pick and how they do. They pick, yeah. Like you can't, like it's not about grading results. It's about grading the process of acquiring that capital, acquiring that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's say like, say in this case, they were trading for money. You know, like you're trade. I'm going to trade Khalil Mack for a billion dollars. It's not like, well, we got to see what they spend the billion dollars on. That's what matters. It's like, no, it's like, dude, they just got a billion dollars for Khalil Mack. They just bought cocaine. Yeah, it's not oh, really sorry. I spent it. it all on Fruit Loops. I don't even know why I said Fruit Loops, but Fruit Loops are garbage now. Did I tell you I recently got a box of Fruit Loops when my mom was in town? And yeah, I tried a bowl. Just... They were absolutely trash. I don't know if when I was a kid, I was just blind. Or... I think that's probably more it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they changed the formula. I couldn't even finish the bowl the recent years. And I'm not like this high and mighty, like I eat healthy, I can't finish a bowl of Fruit Loops. I was like, literally, these don't taste good. Yeah. You know, it was it was wild. But second question from Nick Law 20. As a Bengals fan, would you consider a Parsons slash Pitts selection as a reach of taken at five? Interesting. I haven't seen Parsons considered for the Bengals at five. Assuming that Sewell and Chase are off the board. Thanks, boys. Always a good listen. Yeah, if Sewell and Chase are off the board. That's where I'd go. I'd probably draft Cal Pitts if Sewell and Chase are off the board. So Sewell and Chase? Yeah, if they're if off. If Sewell and Chase are off the board, you're so, trading out of five. I was going to say, so you're trading out. But, yeah. like, again, two to tango with trades. We always love to say trade out. It's sometimes not feasible. But I, I would go Cal Pitts there if those two are gone. All right. From Joey B. 1479. Love the podcast, especially the stories. Austin keeps chucking. Big question heading into next year would it be possible better for the teams like the ravens and browns to trade their quarterbacks for two future first round picks or just stand pat and pay their guys if they lose 30 to 40 million dollars in cap room love the pod easily topping sam and steve for best pff pod let's go 
you got time here, man. Everyone shits on the Cowboys and how they've handled the Dak Prescott thing. But the Cowboys had better results. Or like, it turned out better than what happened with the Eagles. It turned out better than what's happened with the Rams. With Jared Goff, same quarterback class, like way better. Washington football team, when they signed Alex Smith, like a big ass money contract to a quarterback can completely bone you if they're not the guy. They don't. They don't. They don't play up to that standard. Like you are DOA if that's the case. When you're going year by year, and which you have very easily right now with those two guys, since you have the fifth year option, you have three more years of realistically lowish cost I guess two more years of lowish cost and then one more year after that on the tag where it's pretty you know uh, it's not super expensive take that three years take at least two years take at least the next year before you really dive in and say let's try to buy out before the quarterback market because I think it's one of those things where right now quarterback market could get a little depressed because no one's going to surpass Patrick Mahomes. As long as Patrick Mahomes is kind of playing like Patrick Mahomes, no one's going to get more money than Patrick Mahomes because that'd be ridiculous. It's Patrick Mahomes. You're not better than Patrick yeah. Mahomes, this guy. And so and it was kind of like Aaron Rodgers depressed the QB market for maybe like two or three years after he signed his deal back in 14, was that? I think that's a very similar scenario here where you're not going to all of a sudden, the market for Baker Mayfield and Lamar Jackson is not going to be $45 million. Yeah. So when we were talking to Mike Tannenbaum on the serious show last week, he brought up, we brought up the Dak Prescott situation. He said, I was like, you know, what do they do? He says they should have paid Dak two years ago. And at face value, it's like, yeah, sure. But that's like in hindsight, because I don't think the positives or the pros of being two years early and hitting on a quarterback, say that you save the extra five to $10 million in cap space per year or APY per year, because he does develop into that player you paid him for. I don't think the pros for that at the quarterback position outweigh the potential cons of paying him too early and finding out that he's not like going to be the guy for yeah. you. You know, like the Carson Wentz situation, like the Jared Goff situation. Mm-hmm. And some could argue the Derek Carr situation, where like they've been struggling to win football games consistently with Derek Carr being a fringe top eight to top 12 quarterback. So I do think that, yeah, being a year early on a guy and it hitting and you saving that extra five to $10 million in average you know, salary spent per year is great, but I don't think it's worth the potential risk of him not panning out and him not being that guy. So yeah. I definitely think it's a, it's a good conversation. Especially when they've question. been as up and down as those two quarterbacks have. Yes. It's like if you if you have Patrick Mahomes, yeah, you do it then. True. That guy's been a monster for multiple years. He literally has not hit the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dak Prescott has played poorly and played better. Yeah. You know, same with um, you know, Lamar Jackson has played poorly and played better. Baker Mayfield has been a roller coaster his career as well. Yeah. Uh, this is from Joe Blades. Love the pod. Insane stories. Keep them coming. That being said, what do you think their draft plan should be in year one? It's the Lions. Of a complete holdout. Oh, yeah, it's the Lions. Lions question. What do you think the Lions draft plan should be in year one of a complete rebuild? I, for one, wouldn't be opposed to going all defense, specifically defensive line. Jalen Phillips and Lee McNeil are a few favorites of mine. Thoughts on them possibly ending up in Detroit? Thanks for taking my question. Yeah, I think you can take as, so take a page out of the sort of Colts, Browns playbook for how to get back into for, into contention after you know not having a quarterback. Load up on picks. Load up on picks. Trade back this year as many times as you can. Load up on as many picks as possible. And I think throw picks at that secondary. You got Aaron Glenn, your new DC, coming over from New Orleans. He was a secondary coach, obviously. Defensive back in his day. 
cornerbacks. I, I think there's a reason why the Ravens have had top three defenses the past two years. It's because they have the second highest paid cornerback in the NFL playing slot receiver. It's the reason why the Bucks were able to shut down, you know, Saints, Packers, Chiefs. They have the deepest cornerback. Like the, they have five guys in their secondary that are all you know plus starters. That's how you, that's how you get back. That's how you get back to competing. We so are going to consistently go. advocate for the draft a shitload of players in the secondary. Yeah. You know, I, I honestly think, and we've been saying that even before, like Jason Light kind of got praised for it of late. Like I do think that you have to continue to invest in the secondary. Was well, the the Ravens kind of started it again? Like they paid. They made Tavon Young the highest paid slot corner. And then they made Marlon Humphrey and they trade for Marcus Peters. Marcus Peters when they have Earl a secondary Thomas. that's set already. They sign Earl Thomas when they have two starting safeties. Like they've consistently done it. And again, they're the only team in the NFL that's been top three defense the past two years. From PG for three, which players do you think the Packers could have drafted last season that would have helped them win a Super Bowl? I like this question. It's a good idea. Here we go. Round one, T. Higgins. And these are like guys who came off the board slightly after. Round two, Jeremy Chen. So the PFF, uh, and I just wanted to add here, T. Higgins, the PFF board for going wide receiver there was said LaVisca Chenault, who I also think probably would have helped. Number two, round two, Jeremy Chen. PFF board was said Josh Jones, who may have been better on the offensive line, may have helped you pass block a little bit better in that. Also. Especially with some of the injuries they took. Yeah. Round three, Malik Harrison, the linebacker, came off the board a few picks later. He was fairly good as one of the better rookie linebackers. Now he didn't play a ton for Baltimore. PFF board there would have said Kayvon Wallace, the Clemson slot cornerback for them. And then, so they traded a fourth rounder, which was picked 136. And it's worth noting that Legere Snee was picked 138. Wow. I mean, hindsight nice. 2020. You I know, right? But <laughs> that would have been sweet. Just saying. That would have been sweet. I like that. I like that answer. All right. Nick Honks, 52. Hey, guys. Love the pod. My question is, what is the best scheme fit cornerback the Packers could take in the late first or second round oh there's like three Packers questions okay and the next guy cool man z-man is there a cornerback the Packers should be targeting at the back end of round one to replace Kevin King please say JC Horn no matter what and then the last one here from Nico 030698 given the larger zone larger share of zone that we played last season and a new DC coming in who are some good fits at cornerback for the pack so So, cornerback the Rams they are stealing the Rams scheme Rams played less man covers than any other team in the NFL last year. Not a Superman heavy scheme. Now, on the outside, the way they'll play it sometimes, obviously with Jalen Ramsey there, like they would lock him in as their man corner and then play zone elsewhere. But like, that's Jai Alexander in that scheme. So I don't think you're going to be looking at man cover skill sets. So J.C. Horn, no matter what, I don't think that's what the defense are going to no, play. true. I don't think him in a off cover four split field safety stuff is his best role. Like and I don't even think he's like, the be- there are other guys better in this draft class. Specifically, I mentioned Asante Samuel earlier, Greg Newsom. I was about to say Greg Newsom was perfect the fit I that. like. Greg Newsom at 30 or 29 there, bring 29, isn't too early in my opinion. I don't think that's too early for him. I, I think in that scheme, he would be excellent. Like, look at who was playing outside quarter there. You had Jalen Ramsey on one side, obviously a physical monster. Darius Williams at 5'9", 187 on the other side playing outside cornerback that's that's the guy who doesn't play outside cornerback in the nfl that you're worried about because they get beat up by bigger wide receivers you can't play press with them but they're not worried about that because that's not what they do so what about a you can, cheeky tyson campbell on day two if he falls yeah tyson campbell I, I don't i wouldn't love him day one 
Back end around two, though. Uh, yeah. Yeah, back end around two. Tyson Campbell, let's get it. Um, dude, I was talking to Patrick Sertan. That episode was on the Wednesday episode about him and Tyson Campbell and Kyle. I mean, high school just dominating. It's hilarious to hear that, like, just teams would not pass on it. They would literally not throw for the football because Tyson Campbell. Two five star corners. <laughs> they have two five star corners that will be playing uh, in the SEC. Who are some receivers that both? Oh, we don't have the name for this guy. I apologize. But who are the some receivers that are both dynamic and tough that we could target? Oh, I think this is Packers. This is, Pac- this okay. is part of the Packers question. Um, so obviously, I the Packers covet run blocking in their wide receivers. I have been on record saying I'll never tell you about the run blocking of a wide receiver. I don't care I, I, if the guy can get open. That has yeah absurdly more value than whatever they can bring in the run game. But guys that are tough that you could see playing with that sort of mentality. Rondell Moore. That's why I keep saying Rondell Moore to the Packers because he does. He is a monster in the weight room. Amon Ross St. Brown, very similarly. And I've seen clips of him run blocking on the timeline. I'm not proud to say I watched him, but I watched him. <laughs> they look, looked good. Sage Sherratt as well. Now, Sage Sherratt doesn't bring this sort of dynamic deep threat to that offense, but later rounds, those guys. Do you think that teams with mobile quarterbacks neglect their protection too much? Russ made a comment about this, and I would say the Cardinals are beginning to skip Murray's protection because they're aware of his ability to escape. I think this is a good question. I do think that team is definitely considerate. I don't know if they're skipping Murray's protection. Like, they signed... No, not, I don't think they're like... Yeah, I don't... I, they drafted now. Josh Jones in the third. They signed What's-His-Face Beecham last year to a one-year deal. I, I think they're trying to protect him. But, yeah, I feel like there is something to that mobile quarterbacks you feel and one it is true in terms of guys don't defenses will rush a mobile quarterback differently you will have more time if you are a threat to break the pocket and run outside you don't need to have as good an offensive line to get still good pass protection results. and we brought that up multiple times with lamar jackson and ronnie yes. stanley and orlando brown, and Jr. Orlando brown yeah so that is a thing but yeah i think that was kind of the seahawks are regretting it in retrospect because when you do have a dominant offensive line like the Ravens 2019, that's what it looks like. Like the op- option runs when you have one of the best offensive lines in the NFL, make your offense unstoppable. Like, yes, you can get good results with option runs with shit along the offensive line. But when you have good run blocking and you have that threat of the mobile quarterback, it just takes it to another level. Do you think teams, or no, I just read that question. Assuming the top four quarterbacks are off the board, and this is from Doof and Dick. Um, Lawrence Wilson Fields Lance or Mond depending on who you ask what can the New England Patriots do to address the glaring need at corner quarterback also what would be realistic best case scenario for them at all 15 positions or at 15 of all positions especially if Kyle Pitts isn't available what was that gentleman's name I'm again I'm still of the opinion <laughs> I'm still of what'd you say Doofendick yeah what was that gentleman's name what? again it was it was Doofendick okay yeah I just checked. okay um <laughs> Uh, what was I going to say? I'm still of the opinion that if the top four quarterbacks are off the board, don't address it. Yeah. If you're going to pick a quarterback in this class, pick like Jamie Newman in the fifth or sixth. Like, don't don't force this quote unquote bridge quarterback if you're the Patriots. I'm sorry, yeah. your roster isn't good. No one after the big four is going to help your team all that much. And even guys like the third or fourth best quarterback in this class isn't taking you to the playoffs next year. As yeah. good as Bill Belichick is, as good as that defense is, no, tank. Tank and go get Spencer Rattler. Tank and go get Sam Howell. And use yeah. that 15th overall pick to either trade down or attack a J.C. Horn. 
Get a Micah Parsons in that defense. Like, do get good players that aren't quarterbacks because the best ones are going to not be available and your roster's so shit that you're not going to be able to win with any of these guys anyway. Yeah, unless the – here's what I'd do if I would make a very serious play into the top four if I'm them. That's my – what I try to do if that's a feasible to number three or number four to try to get if Fields is there, Lance there, whoever you want. That's would be if, if you don't do that, I'm not drafting quarterback round one. I'm not drafting quarterback round two. I'll think about it round three. Maybe a Davis Mills, maybe a Kellen Mond, Kyle Trask, someone in that range, even though I, I've fucking lamented against those mid-round quarterbacks saying how low the hit rate is on those guys. But I wouldn't hate it just to have someone in the building. But I just think they're not in a situation where you can take the also ran quarterback in this class. The I just don't think that's your best case scenario. And I was just going through their draft history and had to bring up, man, how the Dalton Key and Devin Asiasi picks last year made no sense. Are just made no sense at the time. In retrospect, are still. And it's another one where if it's a weak class, I don't like drafting players from weak draft class, super weak tight end class. You're just not going to get your value because that those guys go fourth fifth round any other year if there was like legit talent at tight end the the other thing i'll mention too about the patriots quarterback situation is i've constantly seen marcus Mariota as like a bridge quarterback for them and like a lot of patriots fans and and some some beat writers are saying yeah i love this fit marcus Mariota's like okay what the fuck is going to happen if you bring in marcus Mariota? vegas is going to put your win totals at like seven and a half eight and a half and you might win nine games (laughs) what is that what you want is that what you want? Do you think Marcus Mariota is even a Marcus Mariota led Patriots team is not even I don't a top hate it. I don't hate it. It's not even a top seven team in the AFC. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like it's not the odds of him actually working the odds of him actually being good seem the low, most likely so. outcome is that he wins like eight, nine games and they're out of the quarterback conversation again and in the same oh, I was thinking more like six games, but you think they only win six games with Marcus Mariota? Yeah, probably. Okay, either way. Six is too much. Yeah. <laughs> you want to win four or fewer games next year. You want to be drafting inside the top five. But it's like he was a guy considered very talented, showed to be very talented early in his career. Something happened. I don't know what. But his developmental curve was weird. It was like up, up, and then off cliff. Awful. Unplayable. So don't know exactly hate- why, but I think there's like people probably hated, you know, you probably would have hated the Ryan Tannehill selection too, but it got them – to the AFC Championship game. Like, that's different situations. I mean, like, guys develop at different paces that I would take a chance on a guy who was considered extremely talented enough to get number two overall. That's why I still would take a chance on, like, Jameis Winston. He was talented enough to go number one overall. So, I don't know. Whatever. I just <laughs> hate it. I hate, I hate the idea of, like, banking on that I, super I'd actually like outlier to see situation where Ryan Tannehill becomes good. Jameis Winston with Bill Belichick. I would love to see that pairing. Just because then Belichick might retire. After that. <laughs> All right, this is from R underscore Gregory. Cole Van Landen of Wisconsin was at one point seen as the next great Wisconsin offensive line prospect, but it's currently number 203 on the PFF big board. What about his performance, measurables, and tangibles are to blame to for his drop in value? He just didn't develop, which like lack of development is a big red flag, especially on the offensive line. He went from solid, you know, 76.1 pass blocking grade his first year as a starter. 65.3 to 70.9. No upward trajectory. That's not a difficult scheme necessarily to pass block in. This past year, and when he faced good players, NFL caliber players, pooped on utterly. 
AJ Vanessa gave him those the biz. Are, yeah, I mean, we talked about the Chase Young game last year where it was just Michigan, too, is and another now, one. And now Chase Young slaughtered a lot of teams, but utterly unblo- couldn't block him. And that, if you can't block a guy who's going to play in the NFL, it's going to be hard to get It's going to be hard when you are in the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is from C. Brum. B-R-U-M-M-E. Do you have a way to measure the player development rate of college programs? Average PFF score, an average rate of PFF score. This would determine which colleges best develop NFL skills through coaching and schemes opposed to just recruiting talent. Yeah, it's not something we've done. It's an interesting problem to look into. I think there's just so many variables that play here. And I'm not sure you're going to do better analysis-wise than just going you know, recruiting ranks purely to draft position. I'm not sure there's like a better, like just like PFF grades are so then competition dependent mm-hmm. to a, to a large degree. Like if, if guys at, you know, San Diego state, San Diego state's offensive line when you're graded out, I'm just using you for example, graded out when they're Rashad Penny's last year, graded out exceptionally well, they weren't playing same offensive lines that I think it was the highest grade offensive line in the country. Grade wise, BYU this year, highest grade wise offensive line in the country. They didn't play teams that, we're actually going to challenge them. And when it comes draft time, they're not going to get drafted super high. And so, yeah, they they took two stars, one stars, and made them all, you know, 80-plus overall grades. So that could say, oh, you know, look at this massive development. But then they only had one, maybe two draft picks along the offensive line. Daniel Brunskill still starts from that offensive line. Asshole. Okay. San Diego State. Legend. Didn't mean to go, didn't mean to go there. But that, that I, I tr- truly think the best analysis for that is purely just – Recruiting rank two, draft position. Nico Siragusa, too, or I think his name is Yeah. Nico. Yeah, he's another guy who's out there. So you better watch your another, tongue. Another you bring up San Diego yeah. State in a negative light again, you're going to be fucking doing this podcast by yourself. I just uh, said they had the best office line in country. Fair, fair, right fair, 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 fair. Also, the Rashad Penny Donald Pumphrey tandem back in the day. Ooh. Man, dude, how salty is Rashad Penny? Rashad Penny could have just shattered every college football rushing record because, again, they had a ridiculously good office line. He was absurdly more talented than Donald Pumphrey, yeah. but sat behind him for three years because Donald Pumphrey it was brutal. Was just the incumbent. And Donald Pumphrey, you can quote me on this, not a quote graphic, is a piece of shit. From, my, from the times I've hung out <laughs> with him at San Diego State, dude sucked. Off the field, legit sucked. Hmm. He, he had like this whole story of like, you know, I had a kid early and I'm doing it for my daughter too. Pff, I know you at parties. Okay. I saw Donald Pumphrey passed out at a fucking pregame. Okay. Don't, don't, don't get me on Donald Pumphrey train. Either way, Rashad Penny, better running back, better player. If Chris Carson walks in free agency, we get our time. We get our time with Rashad Penny in Seattle. We'll get to see it. He's been like, he got shit on because he was overdrafted. No, well, oh yeah, overdrafted, obviously. It's running back. Um, Because Chris Carson was very, very good. Mm -hmm. I think Rashad Penny's also very good. Yeah. So the other big transition for him, too, is like, I think in his career at San Diego State, he only had only 3% of his carries were under center, like, or or no, um, in the gun. Like he did yeah. so much under center running at San Diego State to where like I think that is a pretty decent adjustment going into the NFL. He's like, over five yards of carry for his career. Dude's a stud. Absolute stud. Rashad Penny. Um, this is from Long Dick Dangler. What are you guys' scouting take on Israel Mukwamu, cornerback from South Carolina? Love his frame and ball skills. Oh, man. Um, Great name. You are cracking up with these dick fucking names. They're not that funny. They're, I mean, it's just funny that 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 you're reading them it's <laughs> cracking me up um i for some reason that's not the type of cornerback i go for now they could still be productive in the nfl but the these super long guys who 
win with kind of just that. And now he does have very good ball skills. Like that guy has some interceptions on his tape that are, and some pass breakups that maybe he probably could have played wide receiver. But he's just you know clunky guys who are not going to be able to stick with a wide receiver in terms of agility. Like if you, the along a full route tree, who kind of just have to play in a silos, have to be on the line of scrimmage and then go straight back. And if they have to go anywhere in between, and you're not going to play in the slot, I just I, I don't love those guys. So he's low on our board. But there are schemes that can yes. take advantage of. Those there are guys. certain defenses where he'll have success, but there the man heavy ones are not them. Turn on the Jerry Judy tape. Yeah, when he went against Jerry Judy, I mean, it was like a country crock butter spread on toast. It was not. It was not even fun to watch. It was bad. It was bad. So I do think that. But again, schemes, you know that you know play zone heavy, play him in a silo. He'll be coveted because he's got length. He's got size, yeah. and like he does play very aggressively. I think there's some some intangibles there that are good. But um, I agree that like there are a lot of teams that won't have him on their board even yeah. with how much man they run and all that stuff. So all right, Jack's sports guy. I'm a lifelong Jaguars fan. I kind of felt that. Jacksonville born and raised. <laughs> After taking Lawrence at number one, what would you think of Jacksonville trading up to get Kyle Pitts? What would it take to move up and get him if he falls to the 10 to 12 range? This is the bad call. Bad call, Jacksonville. You're gifted. This is like this other the thing I was saying before. You're given a billion dollars. Most draft cap, no, most dra- um, draft capital in this class and most cap space. Don't start freaking shooting the moon with it. You know, with like Don't buying drugs and hookers yeah. in Vegas. This is a hookers and drugs move okay <laughs> this is like oh man we have so much might as well just freaking get happy go get Kyle Pitts no don't trade up for non-quarterbacks yeah. ever use the picks you have to make this roster better full stop yeah I, I kind of Uh-oh. if he does fall you do love hookers and drugs so. <laughs> if he does fall there's a point where him falling I'm taking a shot a point this price price is right for everybody because at some point cornerstone blue chip talent is very valuable in the NFL more valuable than you know that one guard you could draft in a second so I, I do think that there is a price to get to pick so the corollary here most recent one the Steelers to get from 20 to tw- 10 they had to give up pick 52 and a future third rounder so I think that would mean to get from 25 the Jags are at to the 10 to 12 range, I think they'd have to give up that top of the second rounder is what they'd have to give up to get there. So it's a hefty price. Got a lot of needs on that roster. It would it would have to... I'm thinking about it. You're, def- you're I am a sick thinking man. About it. You're a, a sick, sick man. man. I am sick, and I, I might do it. This is from TBO Gucci. But, he's, uh, I, but again, I don't think he's falling 10 to 12. I'm going to say that name again. This is from TBO Gucci. Browns need linebacker and secondary. What would the best fit for the Browns at 26 be? I really like either Trayvon Moerig. TCU safety. TCU safety. Really like him because I think he can be – like you got some safety there already in the coffers. You got Grant Delp. You got Ron Harrison. He could be your dime safety. Like he could be that guy, that kind of versatile – wherever you want, or Grant Delpa could be that guy. You have two them big, long safeties that are kind of interchangeable. You could do a lot of those like modern defensive three safety things that is the way the game's going. So I would love that fit um, because, again, it's going from fewer linebackers to more safeties is the way the NFL is transitioning. So you don't need a linebacker there necessarily. At 26 overall pick, you don't – unless like Jeremiah was Karamora falls, I, I probably wouldn't address it there. Um, defensive end – I would also think about, because again, take advantage of a deep class, deep defensive end class. 
I like Aziz Ojolari fit because I think he's like NFL ready and he kind of has a complimentary pass rushing style, in my opinion, to Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett may be the best bull rusher in the NFL. He's going to collapse the pocket on his side. Collapse pocket, quarterback backs up. Aziz Ojolari is right there because he's a, he's a top of the pocket bender. And those guys will run into a lot of sacks if a quarterback has to go back up. Uh, he had another question. With both out with both out with season ending injuries last year, can you see Greedy Williams and Grant Delpit making an impact next year? Boy, can I. I uh, that's if you're the Browns, this is where your fingers are crossed. This is what you're banking on taking you to the Super Bowl. Those two guys. Because legitimate legit prospects coming out. First round caliber on our board. Yes. Top, both top twenty in the PFF board. Greedy Williams is only twenty three. He is younger than Rodarius coming. Like he's younger than guys in this draft class at the cornerback position. He's still very young, even though he's going into year three. Grant Delpit's only 22. He's younger than Richie Grant coming out in this draft class. Those guys have legit coverage skill sets that, yeah, career got a little drill of injury, shoulder for Greedy and the Achilles for Delpit, but they come back. That's what you're banking on kind of flipping this defense around i haven't talked to either of those guys but right now if i'm the browns i'm hiring a guy at an entry-level salary to just freaking help develop them help them get to that point you know if you're banking on these two guys developing and you're just going to throw the same resources at them you do everyone else it's i'm not saying they need like a a student aid like you would like if you got like some extra assistance or tutor but let's make sure we hit on here Let's make sure. Let's make sure yeah. we hit. Hire an army of unpaid interns to follow them around. Yes, and yes. whatever they need. Get yes. On. Uh, anyway, anyway, not unpaid. Uh, this is from Southside Fish. Like that. Zach Wilson feels like the epitome of Jets. You're joking, man. Epitome. Sorry. The epitome. <laughs> the epitome of Jets quarterback. Um, small school. Small school guy with only with one incredible year of production behind the best offensive line in the country and already had shoulder surgery. Meanwhile, Justin Fields has been the best player his age, regardless of position, since high school, minus Lawrence, of course, both from Georgia. His two years above 90 in the Power 5, a 90 PFF grade, and his superior running ability makes him so much more of a safer pick, in my opinion. The variance of Wilson scares me, and I feel like we should go with the higher floor prospect instead of the prospect was slightly higher ceiling. Please tell me why my logic is wrong for chasing the high floor instead of the high ceiling in the first round. And I also think, before you answer, this is similar to kind of Seth's conversation around the quarterback class because he released his own 2021 NFL draft quarterback rankings and he had Zach Wilson behind Justin Fields. I think he had Justin Fields as his QB too. Yeah. And I think he uses a lot of that same logic and that like he, he's already done it before. Justin Fields is already very freaking good. And he also talks about how Zach Wilson... Very good, independent of the outside zone offense and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I think I, I push back a little bit on the high floorness of Fields Wilson versus Fields. I think what gives Fields a higher floor is rushing ability. Like it, that in your offense, if you want to build a run game around him, that's going to give him a little bit of a higher floor. That's the sort of on-field passing performance and the fact that at – you know, he was been good since high school and whatnot. I'm not sure that necessarily gives him a higher floor. Zach Wilson came into like BYU like 190 pounds or something and started Same. as a true freshman and earned an 80.5 overall grade. Like he was good as a true freshman. It's the sophomore year is the outlier there, but that was him rehabbing the shoulder injury. That one threw out the window. If you throw that one out the window, go from his freshman year, which was one of the higher graded freshman years we've ever graded, to then sophomore to his junior, that would be the progression you'd expect when a guy is that good as a true freshman. So I don't think he's, I wouldn't really put him in the one year wonder sort of bucket. So I, I think he's very good.
This was a DM on Twitter. Did not make the mailbag, but someone and like said, his accuracy in arm is gives you a high floor too. Nice ad. Nice ad there. This was a DM. I started with the high floor talk. This was a DM on Twitter. Um, didn't make the mailbag, but they said to for me to play you in Madden, and you do not want that smoke. You Ooh. don't even play video games that much. I had to quit video games because I was addicted. Yeah, I was but addicted. I don't play video games that much either. But Madden, I've played Ben Lindsay and Anthony Tresh, and I beat them by seventy both times. Tresh threw fucking fourteen picks against me. Here's something to think about about video games. Who is someone who was a recovering addict? Oh wow. Do you want to be on your deathbed looking back and say, I played more, I need, I wish I played more video games? Just a thought. It's fair. No, it's fair. I do, I do think video games can be fun. It doesn't always have to be. No, it, it has always have to, to be. be this like savagery, but I do think they're getting more popular as like streaming is becoming more yeah. monetizable. It's, it's more interactive. With your, it's like, it's more, it more like well. hanging out with your friends. Definitely. It's, I, I definitely think I they're going to become more popular. And I also will respect a little bit of a tangent here. I respect the drop in, um, like the negative perception around like playing video games on a computer. Cause I do think a lot for a long time, it was like, Oh, you play video games on your computer. You're a nerd. Now it's like being like, and you still feel that way regardless, but it's being way more accepted now. It's like, Oh, you play video games on a controller. You're not that good. Like you only yeah. play you know, all that kind of stuff. I had a roommate it's, it's who played in- league of legends and he would play till like 4am when he had work the next day. And I was just like, get your life together. Dude. You're an adult. <laughs> all right. This is from Matthew 31. I feel like Kyle Pitts could transform the Jets' offense way faster than any quarterback not named Trevor Lawrence. Could you see the Jets taking Pitts at two? This was Colin Cowherd literally had this take this week. Yeah. Which is exceptional. Um, no, it just don't. I could see them taking him. I could see him, him taking Pitts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see them taking him. I, I, but just the, the the process around it is just... I don't flawed. like it. I don't, I don't like, like it. it. Yeah. Kyle um, Pitts could be George Kittle, Travis Kelsey year one, and Sam Darnold still plays the level he played last year, and you're winning four games. Yeah. You, you still have to you still have to then build out basically an entire roster and say Sam Darnold improves. But then like as soon as Sam Darnold improves, your cap space goes because it goes to Darnold. Is the big problem there. And then you can't build out that entire roster. Air Maddie. Podcast question. Please rate Grant Delpit versus the current draftable safeties. Okay. So, still the worst tackler of the bunch. Um, that's not debatable. But I think just in terms of pure coverage ability, the all-around skill set. I like that question. I think he'd be the top one. I'd put him behind Rig because of that tackling, because Rig's a little safer in a lot of different regards. But he'd be safety, too. That's that's high praise. I also love, and you wrote a piece for PFF.com recently about like the best prospects of the PFF era, but comparing talents across classes, mm-hmm. I think can provide a lot of really good context when you're putting together a big board. Absolutely. All right. From Manu Soto. Have you guys ever thought about giving per game and full season grades to referees? We get this question a lot, actually. How about full season grades for front offices? Would love to be able to look at how front offices perform year to year, like how we can look at the performance of players. One last thing. Could you give us some way some way too early projections on who you think will be picking in the top five draft next year. Can I start? Yeah. I do think that this question is similar to kind of an overarching theme from questions PFF gets. It's like, can you make more things measurable? Can you add a number to a player's accuracy, a player's athleticism, a player's um, leadership? You see some draft guys with leadership grades and shit. People want things to be more quantifiable because if they're measurable, they can be easily compared across classes and potentially predictive yeah. eventually. Because subject, subjective analysis or qualitative analysis, like 
has a good face or looks the part. Like that stuff does not have any predictive power to the NFL. But if you start to put numbers to this, like grades on referees, grades on ref, you know, on front offices and these things, grades what. on decisions, you could potentially start to put together a data set that is predictive. However, way easier said than done. You know, grading referees and grading front offices, yeah. especially without being in the building, would be very difficult. Yeah, and, and the referees thing, they do get graded. Like the NFL grades their own referees. Um, I. I think the best way to maybe do it as an outsider is just evaluate every flag thrown and if it was proper flag or not. But that's that's a tough one. And honestly, there's no real interest in that, so we're never going to do it. Probably. Like, really gives shit about projection for top five this. picking teams next year. Oh, and I was going to say one more thing about the front office thing. That one has a little bit more uh, potential in terms of you know every move they made was good or was bad. It was like you could. You kind of get an analysis there. Did it work out? Did it not? Or a scale of how well it worked out. I think there's something to be done there. Not something we looked at, we've looked into though yet. Because again, we really don't want to grade front offices because those are the people that also pay us. So true. We can't really be releasing saying guys. The same guys nuts. that paid us X dollars per year to access PFS grades and stats are the worst front office in the NFL. <laughs> so sadly, conflict of interest there. Um, top five teams next year, uh, the Texans, probably draft number one. Sorry, Spencer Rattler, but it happens. Uh, Eagles, I think are going to be bad. I think you're going to shed some cap. Could be bad. Lions, talked about them. I don't see a one-year massive turnaround for the Jets. They have a lot of Even holes. Even if they could take be, Zach Wilson. Could, I mean, they, we'll see what they do in free agency, but they have – there's a reason they're number two. There's a reason everyone's like, oh, they're not going to win a game this year. It's because straight up they weren't good. So possibly them. And then also a wild card team to throw in there, the Saints, if they are really throwing out Taysom Hill or really shedding that roster, which they've started to do some. They've mainly started with the lower level guys, but they're going to have to work their way up at some point, and we'll see. You know who's not in there, Quinn? The Bengals. Bengals aren't drafting in the top five next year. Joey Burrow taking that step forward. Sneaky playoff <laughs> All right, New York Giants, uh, fanatic for life, asked us, so the majority of mocks for the Dolphins seem to be boiling down to wide receiver and Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, or tackle and Panay Sewell. It's really splitting hairs here. But what's ultimately the best route for the Dolphins to go, taking into consideration moves they could make either in free, uh, for either position in free agency? I think, obviously, trade. Well, you know, we're here at PFF. You're in the top three, someone's quarterback. Trade down. They can't trade down. Say so they can't trade. Panay Sewell, Panay Sewell, Panay Sewell. This again, it's not a short-term decision you're not trying to fill a need on your roster you're trying to when you have a top five pick get the guy who is the most generational talent the, like the most talented because as dolphins fans know when you get that guy you could flip him for two first round picks down the road if he's good enough at a valuable position like offensive tackle when you get a guy that everyone's considered highly going out everyone is that high on coming out in Pennsylvania, and that then comes in as a stud in the nfl like that is so much more valuable than just getting like the wide receiver to fill out your wide receiver depth chart. Now, now those are very good wide receiver prospects. Don't get me wrong, but I think Penesul is just a different caliber for the offensive tackle position. It's Penesul trade down for me as well. I have no other no other opinions on that. Um, this is from Impact Razor Kill. Love that name. Love that. Should Eric DaCosta draft Jalen Mayfield at 27 and play him at right guard until Orlando Brown Jr. situation resolves itself with a contract or tag and trade next year? First question. I We're not obviously not as high as Mayfield as others. He's like 70-something on our board. We talked about that with Brandon Thorne's rankings. Um, 
And I think this wide receiver class, as good as it is, is kind of going to be like last year's where you're sitting at the end of round two and you're like, oh, shit, it's kind of cooked in terms of guys that can just step in and be a one or a two. Especially an outside receiver. Yes. Because there's a d- it's a deep-ish slot receiver class. Yes. But if you want an alpha on the outside, they're going to be gone. By and, and I think the picks. Ravens have they've tried those mid-round guys. Haven't worked. Now, they tried the first-round guy. And Hollywood Brown actually has been all right. Like he just His numbers look a lot different with some uh, more accurate deep balls last season. But I do think a bigger outside type of wide receiver, whether it's Rashad Bateman, whether it's Terrace Marshall, you're not going to find at the end of round two. So that's where I'd go. Dude, the second question is incredible. Uh, should the NFL ditch wildcard weekend instead have an 18 playoff with the Super Bowl being a best of three series? 10 to 12 days rest between games could be more lucrative for the league. Take over the, a city for a month. Fuck, I kind of like it. I know best of three would be nuts. And like the biggest reason. So a lot of people ask or a lot of people like ideate on why the NFL is only played once per week. And I think the number one response is usually, you know, it's the wear and tear on your body. And I agree that's a huge part of it. Another big part of it is that it is is a it is chess. It is like strategy focused. Mm-hmm. You cannot just show up and play a team. You need to prepare multiple days in advance of playing these games. And, and again, in addition to the wear and tear on your body, it's a very physical sport. But like, you know, there, there's other sports too. Like hockey is very physical. Hockey is a very physical sport as well. Same with basketball. They play like they sometimes play double headers because yeah. it's not as focused on strategy as the NFL is. There's a reason they play once a week, and a part of it is the wear and tear, but it's also like preparing for these fucking teams. Like, you need to legitimately put together game plans every single week. You know, there's so much more organization in football while they're those free-flowing sports like soccer, hockey, basketball. It's a lot of free-flowing chaos where, like, yes, you're calling plays, you know, those things, but, like, a lot of it's like, hey, dude, go get a bucket. You know what I mean? Go make a goal. Go make a play. A lot of in-transition stuff where, like, you're being kind of free ball. Best three would be insane. Selfishly, I'd love to have football in February because February is the worst month otherwise in terms of just there's nothing to do. Yeah. It's cold. You got nothing on TV. Did you take over February and then like it's all in the same city? It'd be cool. But you'd also be having teams play possibly five extra games. It's a lot to ask when, you know, it's a very competitive disadvantage the next year to play 21 games for some teams playing 16. You'd so. also have such a high percentage of the NFL decision makers who would vote on that be like really upset about disrupting the history of the game. Yeah. And I do think like the history of the game shows up a ton in baseball. It shows up a ton in, and it shows up even a decent amount in football. Like I think a, that would be a primary argument by a lot of old timers for sure. Like, like, Oh my God, like this is the Super Bowl will never be the same. Like you can't even like, it, it would be a new era, you know, yeah. of football it really would. And I think, do you want to make that decision? But like, here's the, here's the problem here. I'm not, here's the problem. Here's the fact. If it makes more money, the NFL will do it. <laughs> like that's fucking. If the NFL, if the NFL would make seventeenth game, if the, yeah, if off. the NFL, if it makes more money for me, I will do it. That's how the NFL is looking at this every single year. Yeah. When they're making rules changes, when they're like, it's it's literally not to like increase the integrity of the game or make the game better. It's how do we make more money? Mm-hmm. Oh, what if we added this penalty that hurts defenses and called it twenty five percent more of the time to bit more points? I like that. More ratings, more money. Let's do it. Like this is. It's yeah. not that hard. Man. Stop calling off. It's a holding this year. Yeah, it's a business. It is a business. How do we make more money? Period. All right. KR295708. Is there a big difference between right tackle and left tackle these days? You have a lot of opinions on this. I'm inclined to think that no, however, have some friends that disagree. I'm inclined to think. I'm inclined no. to think no. Oh, I'm inclined to think no. However, there's no commas or grammar yeah, in this. Yeah, I know there shit. is not. I'm inclined to think no, however, have some friends that disagree. What can I tell them to prove me prove them wrong? They're usually recent. They're using the recent Orlando Brown news as ammo. 
So no, I, I don't believe there's a big difference or maybe even feasibly any difference between left tackle and right tackle, depending on, I mean, if you want to run your offense to put the left tackle on the island more, left tackle is going to be more valuable. If you want to run it to the right tackle on the island more, right tackle is going to be more valuable. And it also then matters what division you're in. Are you in a division with a bunch of good guys who rush off your right tackle? Then your right tackle is going to be more valuable. Because uh, the biggest thing is, yeah, the left's the blind side, but when you can see pressure, and this study, we did this study in 2013. Steve Palazzolo wrote the article, April 29th, two days after my birthday, that when you can see pressure, it's more impactful. Pressure from the left tackle, can't see it, not as impactful in terms of like you're throwing actually down the field. And that's something that's you know, not necessarily talked about. Oh, it's the blind side. It's more likely to be sack, sack fumbles. But there's a lot of blind side from the front side as well, from the right tackle. So there's not a big difference. The Orlando Brown news, I, I think teams have caught up to it. You saw Lane Johnson get 18 mil a year, become the highest paid tackle as a right tackle. You saw Trent Brown get the highest paid deal when he came uh, out in free agency to play right tackle. I don't think – that's why we were saying Orlando Brown news is sh- him saying I'm a left tackle, in my opinion, short-sighted because they're getting paid about the same now. Yeah, I mean, that that was very recent. Like, Trent Brown was made the highest paid offensive tackle in the NFL to play right tackle, like, yeah. a few years ago, two, two-ish two years ago. Yeah. I think Orlando Brown should see that and say, like, hey, if I fucking, if I'm the guy, if I can be Trent Brown levels of good, which you could argue he's not even been that, I could be the highest paid tackle in the NFL, too. I don't, again, I think someone in his camp has got to be like, hey, we got to think about this a little bit more. Yeah. You know, we got we got to, like, use some of the, like, the Lamar Jackson rushing and stuff. Like, I do think there's there's opportunity to think about that a little bit more. One more question, and then we'll wrap the mailbag episode with the interviews with Boogie Basham and Patrick Sertan. This one's from Mima K44. Love the pod, and as a Steelers fan, what would the best scenario for them in this draft be? Again, I, I think the offensive attack class, sneaky even the wide receiver class, and the edge class are super deep. They don't really have a ton of glaring needs outside of their offensive line on this roster. So obviously I think go offensive tackle if that's if if that's how the board shakes out, unless there's a real big run on them before you. I think that's probably where the best you'll get your best value sitting in the twenties is. Fair enough. I think Tevin Jenkins is an option there. I definitely I like any Tevin of the, the talented edge groups, especially if they let Bud do pre walk, which I think yeah. they will. Um going after tackle and edge. And, and we're going to say this, you know, because again, we don't, compared to the, the average draft analyst, we do not factor in need as much, you know, positional need as much. You've said this before, draft is for value, free agency is for need. You're going to see if your team is drafting from 24 or 20 to 32 in the first round, we're going to consistently bring up edge. We're going to consistently bring offensive tackle because there is some value at that part of the draft, in our opinion, for there, regardless of the team you have. And guess what? Those two positions are two of the highest paid positions in the NFL. So getting them in the first round where you have that extra, you have cost controlled players with the fifth year option at valuable positions is a dub. Yep. A dub. All right. Let's end the pod there. Let's jump now to interviews with. Clemson offensive tackle Jackson Carmen and Oklahoma interior offensive lineman Creed Humphrey. <sighs> Joining the Two Foreign Drafts podcast is now former Clemson offensive tackle Jackson Carmen. Great to have you on the show, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Gonna have to start with this. So you're you're a Cincinnati guy, right? You're from Cincinnati? Yes, sir. So, so Pro Football Focus, I don't know how familiar you are with the company, but they're based in Cincinnati. Chris Collinsworth, well, former Cincinnati Bengal. 
you know, had the company come to Cincinnati or whatever it was. But PFF, if you didn't know, in addition to like grading NFL players and grading college players, dipped into grading high schools. And they started to do that. And they started with one Fairfield High School was one of the first ones. And when uh, you were at Fairfield, one of the first games that I think some of our analysts graded was one where you were just like murdering people. <laughs> like there was like, wait, wait, what is this? Who is this guy? And then obviously from there, like you were pancaking guys and all this stuff. And I'm sure like highlights that are on your huddle film now. But I remember my podcast co-host who was grading some of those high school games, Mike Renner, he said, he told, told us you know, at PFF, was like, hey, there's this guy, Jackson Carmen at, at Fairfield. That's a monster. And then obviously you're also an, an insanely good athlete and recruiting is obviously like, size and athleticism and those things but in addition to that obviously you're bowling people over at Fairfield talk to me more about that that experience at Fairfield you know being like what looks like the biggest player on the football field every time you played and two the recruiting process five-star recruit offers from Bama USC Ohio State you obviously ultimately go to Clemson but um talk to me about that process and the decision to go to Clemson yeah so high school was easily like one of my favorite times playing football because that was when I really started to see the value in playing football through the future and my head coach, my offensive line coach, Jason Krause and Matt Tyler, really just like took me in and just really developed me as an offensive lineman. And my whole career of football up until that point, I had played defensive line. And so my first time ever playing varsity football was as an offensive lineman. And really they, my football career took off from there. And foot, high school football was very fun. We had a great stadium, great program. And we played in some big time games. And that's like when I really started to realize that, hey, I can really take this thing far. And so we're recruiting, my recruiting process was really crazy, actually, just like, because I had so many different schools reaching out to me and all hit me very, like, at one time. And so ultimately, my three schools I narrowed down to was Southern California, Ohio State, and Clemson. And for Southern California, I really loved, like, Coach Helton and the guys I met out there. I loved L.A. But me personally, as a guy coming out of high school, I recognized the things that I needed to get better at and work on. I just felt like Southern California had, Los Angeles in particular just had too many things going on and too much things I could get into that might ultimately have me distracted from my future goals. And with Ohio State, like I really love Ohio State. They're a great program, but I really just wanted to get out of Ohio. And I felt like Clemson was a good balance between me being able to get out of Ohio and experience something new, but also being able to compete at a high caliber program and be in an area where I felt I could really be focused. Yeah, I think that's, you know, those are good reasons, specifically bringing up USC. So I'm not from Ohio originally. I'm from um, California. I went to uh, San Diego State. I tell you right now, Southern California, there's a lot more distractions there yeah. than there are in uh, Cincinnati. And, and I, I assume Clemson, I haven't been out there. But um, looking at, you know, the career that you did have at Clemson, I think you played, you know, a ton of snaps at left tackle in, in the ACC, playing against top flight competition, you know, having those opportunities to go against top tier pass rushers. Um, I ultimately, I think it was, it was the right decision. I mean, you go out there and, and have the success that you did, but playing so much left tackle, there are some that say like, you know, with your size, six foot five, three thirty five, one of the bigger, you know, offensive tackles. Some say you could kick inside the guard and have success. Have you had any feedback from teams about where they want to play you at the next level or where you personally are aiming to play at the next level? Every team I've talked to has, has told me personally that they view me as a left tackle and most of the teams as one of their top left tackles. But also, all, every team has asked me how I feel about playing guard. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them that I feel like my ceiling is always going to be highest at left tackle, and I feel like I'm going to be a very elite tackle on the NFL level. But as me as a player, I'm a very team-oriented player. So when I go into a, a club, that's not my decision to make at the end of the day. And whatever I need to do to make the team the best, whatever I need to do to fill in that role, I'm going to be an elite guard. I'll be an elite right tackle. I'll be an elite center if I have to. But whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do it great. 
Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I definitely think teams covet, you know, that positional versatility along the offensive line, but obviously the most valuable position, the highest paid position along the offensive line is at left tackle. Um, you're training right now with Duke Manyweather there in Texas, also preparing for what I think is a Clemson Pro Day that's coming up. Uh, what drills are you prioritizing right now? I'm sure it's a mix of everything, but are there any drills specifically that you know, you've highlighted as big ones for you, whether that's, I know broad is really important for offensive linemen, vertical, 10-yard split, 40-yard dash. Are there drills at the top of your mind right now that you're prioritizing? I feel like everything is a, is a priority to me. I, would, I wouldn't say there's a singular thing that I feel like I'm singling out. And, and what weight did you play at this past season, and are you, what weight are you working to play at in the NFL? I did not play a snap over 330 or under 325. And right now, currently, I'm at 315. Wow. And are you working to get lower than 315? Right now, this is just a comfortable way for me training and whatever I feel best at when the time comes. I feel like I could play at 325 or 330. I also feel like I could play 315 to 310. Oh, man, that's that's awesome. It's good to have that range and good to have that you know flexibility. Some guys really struggle to cut that weight or, or, or put on that weight. To have that range, I think, is obviously – super important um you know going back to your time at Clemson I'd love to hear more about your kind of preparation process um in a given game week how much film you're watching and what you're looking for on film when you're going against a, a certain pass rusher or a certain defense so for me I watch film every day I watch film like at home when I was just laying in bed or I also watch film for and after practice and that was an everyday thing with my guys and when I'm going against a pass rusher one thing I like to do is I like to watch all of their pass rush, like their true pass rush snaps and their pressures. I see what the, what type of set the offensive tackle take. Or I like to see what the defensive lineman's move, like reaction was to that set. And then what like I would critique or like a comment that I had on that particular play or instance. And I would go through with all their pressures and I'll go through all like their true pass sets. And I would go and look, especially like the teams that played offenses that were similar to Clemson and tackles that I felt like that I respected. I would look at those things and I would break down rushers. And, and do you like chart pass rush moves? And do you feel like you want to like go into each game, like, you know, knowing what a player is going to come, come with his primary move or counter move. I've talked to other offensive tackles. Jonah Williams is a guy that comes to mind who, when I talked to him, he said he's got an Excel file of every guy's move and what he's going to do and how often he wins. I'd be interested to know like what level of detail you put into like charting a player's moves and how you kind of prepare to counter those moves. Yeah. I have a whole entire like chart in my notes app with columns that goes through every single move that the defensive lineman does. And then I highlight their favorite move or their go-to move and especially their versus different types of passes that's often to take. And so how does that film study kind of change in the off season? Obviously in season, you're looking to for tendencies for certain pass rushers and kind of preparing for that week. But in the off season, do you kind of use that opportunity to reflect, watch more film from yourself or even watch film on NFL guys? Definitely reflecting and watching filming yourself is something I feel like is really important in the off season because that's your time to build yourself as a player, but also, especially this off season upcoming for the NFL, something I've been able to do is start building my resume for pass rushers in the NFL and being able to really like go and dive into that and get into more detail and learn more and ultimately know the league and know who I'm going to be going against and having a foot up to be able to dominate. So I think that's something I'm really excited about. You know, watching those pass rushers in the NFL, who do you think is kind of at the best, you know, the best at the game right now? Khalil Mack and Aaron Donald. Yeah, I, I think some people, you know, Miles Garrett's in that conversation as well. TJ Watt has had Correct. some success. Awesome. But uh, Miles Garrett also like recently dropped a video on YouTube or 
Instagram or something, him playing basketball just looks like an absolute freak. That guy is a, a freak of nature. <laughs> uh, what about offensive tackles? Do you watch any NFL offensive tackles? Do you pattern your game after any tackles in the NFL? Yeah, so I love to watch guys like David Bakhtiari, Trent Williams, um, the kids from from the Ravens, Brown and Staley or Stanley. I also like to watch some of the older guys like Ogden and even like like watching guys like Munoz, like people who kind of like forget about. I feel like I've watched or at least like studied every single like major elite offensive tackle in the past like decade and just really really being able to like take little bits and pieces from everyone's game and add it to my own. I wouldn't say there's necessarily a certain like one that I feel like is like exactly like me, but I feel like I see myself in different guys like Trent Williams and Joe Staley, like just very natural fluid athletes. Um, I also feel like me and like Tristan works kind of like very look similar. It's like, as far as like body composition, the way we're built and the way we move. Yeah, Tristan Wurst is an, like yourself is an athletic freak. I mean, that guy like broke combine records for broad jump and those things. So I think something that's yeah. highlighted uh, from PFF's angle is that you know obviously you're a super explosive athlete and you win with that explosiveness and athleticism at the collegiate level. Do you feel like that's like the key strength that separates you in this class if you were building out your own scouting profile, or what do you feel like separates you in this tackle class? I feel like that's definitely one aspect that I feel like really does separate me is my just like natural athleticism and explosiveness. Also, I feel like I'm a very intelligent football player. I'm a very, very mindful football player. And I feel like a lot of those things kind of get overlooked. Just guys that are able to just like feel the game and see the game and react and to know like what they're doing from a mental standpoint. I feel like I have a very, very good mind for the game. And I think that's, I think it gets underrated because, you know, the guys on Twitter and, and media scouts don't necessarily get into that. That's why I think when you talk to NFL scouts and people in NFL front offices, they value the interview process. They value putting guys on the big board and, and having them run out plays and that kind of thing because intelligence is so important. Um, who are some guys, you know, playing in the ACC, playing against talented pass rushers, who are some guys that you felt gave you good competition in the AFC or who's or ACC? And who do you feel like was like the best guy you went up against? So throughout my career, I feel like I've gone against a very good resume of pass rushers. Starting with my sophomore, even my freshman year, the, the big four defensive linemen at Clemson, I went against every day in practice, Xavier Thomas and KJ Henry as well. Um, but starting from my sophomore year, Alex Highsmith from UNC Charlotte was a dude, very underrated in college. Chase Young, obviously. Caleb on Chase on in the playoffs. Um, Ken Law. Uh, right before the playoffs and then moving into my junior season Patrick Jones from um, Pitt the kids from Notre Dame Tyreek Smith from Ohio State Roche from Miami and I feel like I've really gone against like a lot of really elite guys it's every single well. week in the ACC man every single week you're going right. against a top guy it seems like that's uh definitely a good resume um we can finish with this man and I, I really like to ask guys you know what their motivation is you know why they pursue the game you know there's a lot of sacrifice that comes with you know playing in the NFL and pursuing you know the league like you are right now what what is your motivation behind you know playing football and, and putting up as much as you have I feel like there's for me there's never a singular motivation I feel like I have a lot of different things driving me but most importantly I feel like this past previous year, right before the Notre Dame game, the Friday before the Friday before the Notre Dame game, my Pee Wee coach, he coached me all through like Pee Wee, and I feel like really put the heart and the love and the game uh, of the game of football into me, and like was really there for me as a male father figure in my young life, like with a single parent household. He passed the day before the Notre Dame game, and like 
all the dreams and like different aspirations we had growing up and knowing that he wouldn't, he's not going to be there to be able to realize that in person with me, but also just having that extra motivation behind me, driving me forward, knowing that I'm going to do it regardless that he's watching me all the time. And then also just being able to provide and just completely flip the narrative of generational wealth in my family. And then also just, I feel like for me, just being able to push myself and see how great I really can become and not just being a guy that has potential, but realizing and exceeding that. That's awesome, man. Definitely embracing the challenge. I said we finished with that one, but I just remembered I talked to uh, your former teammate Amari Rogers recently, and he was saying, you know, one of the things about Trevor Lawrence was that, you know, he's always competitive, always competitive on and off the field, including Clemson dodgeball games. I need to hear who is the better dodgeball player, Trevor Lawrence or DJ Wongalele, because both those guys have absolute cannons. I- I'm not sure uh, what your experience with them playing dodgeball was, but who's the better player? Uh, that's like a question. Michael or LeBron, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're both that, that Michael guys. and LeBron. <laughs> That's incredible. How often would you guys play dodgeball? Um, a couple of times. It wasn't super often, but yeah. those guys are you can't really understate the amount of on time those guys have. So Yeah, you really can. I mean, even in the game that DJ did play, you just see it pop off the tape that he has an absolute cannon. Amari said he's going to throw a lot of go balls next year, and I definitely agree with that. Jackson, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you jumping on the show, and um, uh, I, wish, I wish you the best of luck moving forward. I appreciate you. Have a good day, man. Joining the two for one drafts podcast is now former Oklahoma center interior offensive lineman Creed Humphrey. Creed, great to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, man. So I know you're training out there in Texas. What right now are you working on? I think the pro day for Oklahoma is in early March, March 11th or March 10th. Uh, what, what are you working on right now from a drills perspective? Is there any specific drills you're prioritizing? Yeah, you know, we're just uh, doing general combine training right now uh, with the group down there. Also working with Duke Mannyweather daily. Uh, he down, he's down there tra- uh, training us. So it's, uh, it's been really good, really productive. Nice, man. With Duke, who, what other prospects from this class are working out with Duke down there? Yeah, we got a really good group this year. Uh, we got guys like Trey Smith down there from Tennessee, uh, Alex Leatherwood's down here, uh, Brady Christensen from BYU, uh, Kendra Green from Illinois, Jack Anderson from Texas Tech, uh, Adrian Ely's from OU. There's a ton of guys down here. It's a really good group. Kendrick Green, man, that's one of my one of my favorites in this class. Dude's explosive as hell. He's going to be an interesting watch as we kind of progress forward here. Um, before we touch on kind of what you did at Oklahoma and talk more about that, I wanted to look at your kind of recruiting background, obviously from Oklahoma, former four-star recruit, you know, 4.0 student, and also kind of a wrestling standout. Can we get in a little insight on your wrestling career? Because I was talking to UCLA's Osa Digizua, who like never lost a wrestling match from like his fresh or after his freshman season. Um, you know, how much were you, how, how big of a wrestler were you in high school? Yeah. So, I mean, I started wrestling around four years old. My dad was a three time All American in college. So he had me and my brother in the wrestling room at a really young age. Uh, wrestled through middle school. Uh, when I got to high school, I wanted to focus only on football. So I didn't wrestle my freshman and sophomore year. Then, uh, you know, I just missed it. So I went back and wrestled my junior season in high school. Uh, went 19-1. and one. Uh, The only match I lost was in the state finals. I lost in triple overtime. But, uh, you know, it was really fun. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't get to wrestle my senior year. I uh, ended up uh, enrolling early at OU. So I was down there uh, in January. So I wasn't able to wrestle that season. But, uh, yeah, man, I really enjoy wrestling. I feel like it's helped me a lot with my game. So, uh, yeah, I was really happy to be able to go wrestle that season. Do you ever wrestle any, you know, guys at Oklahoma? Did you guys ever have any matches after practice? 
Uh, no, not really. You know, we didn't really have any other wrestlers. We had one wrestler on the team, but uh, no, not really. Gotcha, man. Well, what's your, I used to wrestle in high school, too. What's your go-to move in the, the stand-up position? Are you going double-leg takedown, single-leg? Are you more defense guy? Talk to me. Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of heavyweights like to clinch up and everything. I wasn't really like that. You know, I like to attack legs, you know, outside singles, high crotches, things like that. Uh, Single-leg takedowns a lot. Nice, man. Very cool. Well, let, off the wrestling stuff, on to football. Um, you know, played a ton of center at, at uh, Oklahoma. Didn't really move around a ton. I think you played over 700 snaps at center in each of the past three seasons. Is that the position you also played in high school? Did you expect to play center, like, kind of your entire career at Oklahoma? Yeah, so uh, my sophomore year of high school, I was actually a tight end, fullback, and defensive lineman. Uh, junior season, I ended up playing tackle. And then uh, my senior season, you know, I – Got word from OU, you know, they were needing a center. So that's where they recruited me for. So I ended up playing center my senior season. But uh, yeah, I kind of expected going to know you. I was going to be playing center. And obviously, you know, you're from Shawnee, Oklahoma, and had offers to go to Alabama, Arizona State, some other schools as well. Was a big part of going to Oklahoma, like staying home and staying by your family? Uh, yeah, you know, I wanted to be close with my family uh, throughout college. And also, you know, the coaching staff there is unbelievable. You know, I think Coach B is one of the best O-line coaches in the country and the, at the college level. So uh, just him, uh, having him there and ha- being around my family uh, close to home, those are big things for me. And, you know, I also grew up in OU fan my whole life. So that was kind of a dream of mine to play there. So Very cool, man. Uh, you know, looking at, you know, what you did at Oklahoma, you're coming off the best season from a PFF perspective, earned an 80.3 PFF grade this past year. Obviously, I think a strength for you is, you know, your strength and, and what you can do as a run blocker on the move and those things. I feel like that's kind of something that I think separates you in this class, but that's from, you know, the third party looking in. What would you say are strengths that you have that separate you in this interior offensive line class? Yeah, you know, just uh, my play strength that I play with, uh, being able to read defenses and, you know, dissecting what teams are doing from play to play and, you know, in different situations, things like that. Uh, You know, just a leadership standpoint, you know, I feel like I'm a great leader. Uh, And yeah, you know, winning with leverage is something I do a lot. And uh, so, yeah, those things really. And, and so talk to me more about kind of like you, you speak to like reading defenses and those things. What exactly was your role pre-snap playing center at Oklahoma? Cause I know that ranges by offense and going from college to the NFL, I'm sure that role will change, but what were the expectations for you pre-snap at center at Oklahoma? Yeah. So at center, you know, I had a lot of responsibility at OU, uh, any, any pass protection, you know, I was the one calling out the pass pro, what we were doing in it, whether, uh, what way we were sliding, who we were pointing out the mic, different things like that. In the run game, you know, I was responsible for telling, uh, everybody on the offensive line, who they're blocking, you know, what combo blocks we're using. So, you know, I had a lot of uh, free range in what I was calling there. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. You know, it helped me grow as a player mentally. So it was it was really good for me. So in a given game week, how much film are you watching on an opposing defense or opposing defensive players you'll likely see on the inside? And when you are watching that film, what exactly are you looking for from a tendencies perspective to kind of prepare for that game? Yeah, you know, so when I break down film, you know, I spend a ton of a ton of time in the film room uh, throughout the week. And uh, usually I start out with uh, just, you know, going over what their general philosophy is on defense in the earlier part of the week, what they like to do, you know, how they like to line up in different formations, what their tendencies are in those formations, uh, what they like to do in third down packages, different things like that. And really just break, break things down from a tendency perspective. Uh, you know, I feel like if I do that, it helps me have a much better understanding of how they're going to try to attack our offense. And uh, so, I, you know, I break that down through the earlier parts of the week. 
and then uh, uh, in the later parts of the week, I like to break down personnel film. So, you know, I go in there, start reading uh, what they like to do as far as, you know, how they use their hands, how they like to pass rush, different things like that. And uh, just so I have a really good idea of what I'm going against uh, coming into the game week. You also had an opportunity to go to Mobile and play at the Senior Bowl during that week and go against, you know, some of the top prospects in the country or in this class. You know, how, what was that experience like for you? What did you gain from uh, from that week? It was great. You know, uh, I got to go against a ton of good players there. Uh, really just, I felt like I got to showcase what I can do against uh, top level talent, you know, and uh, I felt like I had a good week. You know, I felt like I uh, learned a lot of stuff, um, you know, and how the Dolphins like to approach how they're playing a game, different things like that. And uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was a really good week. I got to meet really good people too throughout the week. So it was, it was a good experience. What feedback did you receive from, you know, the Miami Dolphins coaching staff, both positive and negative? And I know from what I've heard from talking to other guys that were down there, there was like a speed dating session, like 15 minute intervals with every single team. Was there any feedback you received in there or any information you received there about your game? Yeah, you know, uh, one thing that, you know, I got a lot of feedback on was, you know, how I approach the game and, you know, how professional I am in that situation uh with the Dolphins you know they talked about they talked to me about you know how coachable I am you know going in there and learning different techniques and being able to learn those very quickly uh that was one thing they they pointed out so uh it was a good week uh, a lot of good things I heard to be able to uh, improve my game and I know we talked about you know watching film in season and kind of preparing for upcoming defenses and those things how does that film preparation for you change in the off season do you like to watch a ton of film on yourself or film on NFL guys. I guess I'm interested to know like what film study you're doing now. Yeah. You know, I, I go back and, you know, keep watching teams uh, that we play in our conference throughout the off season. And, and I like to break down NFL guys during that time to kind of see what they do, what makes them successful, you know, what techniques they like to use, things like that. So, I'm, you know, at OU, we have a huge library of NFL guys to watch, you know, from a ton of years. So, you know, I like to break down guys like Nick Mangold, uh, Travis Frederick, the Pouncey brothers. Those are guys who I really like to watch. And, and do you feel like those guys too are, are guys you like to pattern your game after? You're one of the, yeah, I think what's interesting about, you know, your profile is you're one of the bigger centers. Like you are a big dude playing center. Normally you see guys with your frame playing guard or sometimes even getting stretched out to tackle. Who are some other centers like with similar body types that you feel like you pattern your game after? Yeah, you know, I really try to pattern my game a lot after, you know, how Nick Mangold played and, you know, how Travis Frederick played. You know, I think those are two of the best centers uh, in a long time in the NFL. So, you know, I like to watch them a lot and uh, get different things from them. Well, uh, only last question for you, and I'd like to finish some of the interviews with this, is just talking about, you know, what you feel like you're going to bring to an NFL team in 2020 and beyond, or 2021 and beyond. And also, what is your motivation for pursuing football to the degree that you do? Yeah, you know, for, you know, my motivation of football is uh, I'm a guy who uh, likes to help people out. And, you know, team sports have always been a big thing for me. I enjoy wrestling, you know, but uh, that was, you know, kind of a thing that was a one-on-one match, you know. So in football, you get to, you know, play for other guys that you're doing uh, the games with, things like that. So, you know, you get to help out a lot of people, and that's something that's big for me. You know, I like helping out my teammates, different things like that. And also just, you know, I love the game of football so much. And that's such a big thing for me. It's a big part of my life. And uh, so, you know, that's really why I play football is just the love I have for it. And I've had for it, you know, my entire life. So, yeah, that and on the other question, you know, about what I can bring to a team, you know, uh, leadership ability, you know, is big for me. You know, I think I'm a, I'm a great leader. Uh, 
I've been a two-year captain now at OU. It's elected by the players. And uh, so that was big for me, you know, being a captain there just because that meant that the guys around me trusted me, you know, to be able to lead them. So I was really happy about that, you know, becoming a captain there. And also just uh, playing with a certain type of toughness. You know, I don't think uh, a lot of people play with the same toughness I do. You know, I'm a guy who goes in there and I'm looking to fight somebody every single play. You know, that's how I play. So, you know, those two things are big for me. Absolutely, man. Well, I really appreciate you setting aside the time, and I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Definitely. Thank you, guys. Love the mailbag episodes. Love those interviews with two really good offensive linemen. I think Jackson Carmen, how quickly he was to say, I'm an offensive tackle. Teams see me as an offensive tackle, and they see me as one of the best ones in this class. I thought he was very confident, a confident young player with a ton of athleticism. Really impressed with the Jackson Carmen interview. Uh, remember, if you want to get on these mailbag episodes, Go to Apple Podcasts, create an account. You can create two accounts, three accounts, whatever you need to do. Leave a five-star review with a question, and we will get to that question on our mailbags moving forward. It also helps a ton with podcast ratings and us making more money here at PFF and keeping our jobs. Would really appreciate that. Austin Gale, producer Mike Quinn, producer Dave, producer, not producer, talent Mike Renner, 2-4 drafts. (laughs) 